it's episode 15 of The Build. Thanks for tuning in. Hold on, I got a mic on my headset that I have to push in. Why didn't I do this before? Um, thanks for coming back. I know I wasn't here last week. Why? Uh, well, last week was Memorial Day in, in the United States, so I was with my family on Monday. We don't typically have Mondays off. The capitalist hellscape we live in. So it was nice to see my family. Um, I also <laughs> wanted to record on Tuesday, but then my brain decided to eat itself for like four straight days. So that's not fun. Um, wouldn't recommend zero out of 10. Um, this chair is really squeaky. Um, and what else? Uh, Kristen's downstairs making dinner. So if you hear noises that are dinner sounding, that's what you hear. Um, also there's a stink bug that keeps flying around. So if you hear stink bug noises, that's what you hear. I think I covered everything there. Uh, and yeah, over the last week, there wasn't really much happening with the Canadians. I didn't think you guys needed to hear me talk about, um, Jeff Petrie for 45 minutes. Um, and moving forward, these episodes might come out a little bit later, um, on Monday nights, just because it's summer and I record these in an attic. And after I get done with work, typically it is very hot up here. So, um, I try to try, I try not to sweat while I do podcasts. I'm a sweaty guy. Just letting you letting you in behind the curtain. I sweat all the time. So if you don't want to wait and listen to these at like 9 o'clock on a Monday night, look for them on Tuesday mornings. Um, why is my computer verifying OneDrive right now? It is podcast time, computer. All right. Uh, lots to talk about this one, and I've already screwed around enough so we can start talking about actual Canadians things. Um, I think it goes without saying that the biggest piece of Canadians news since the draft lottery happened uh, last week, which was the signing of St. Louis to his three-year contract, um, as well as uh, removing the interim tag. Obviously, that was going to happen with any sort of contract um, that came down the pike for him, but it is nice to finally have that closure that is now official. We The Canadians have an official head coach for the next three years. Um and if you've listened to this, you know, if you've listened to this show for a little while, I was always a little bullish on, um, you know, the 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 length of that contract. I was a little worried about it because I didn't want Ducharme 2.0. He gets the same term as Ducharme, three years. But I think the the difference is that the expectations are different for these two coaches. Um, and I think, you know, the encouraging part was that they understand those expectations. Um, and St. Louis said it himself. I'll just read what, what he said in his press conference. It's a bit long, but I think it's important to get all of it. Um, he says, I don't like to lose, but do I want to win in a short-term mindset, so to speak, at the price of not developing younger guys that are going to help you win for years? No, I don't want to risk that. So I want to have the young guys, the prospects, the players that are here now reach their full potential. And sometimes you've got to put those guys on the ice and make them feel confident on the ice. And short-term, that does not help you win as many games. Or, or I should say, in short-term, does that not help you win as many games? I don't know. But I'm not going into the season and just thinking about having to win every game at the price of not developing the young guys. I'm not doing that. I think if I develop the guys the way I know I can and have them reach their full potential, I think winning is going to be a side effect of what we're doing. And once you get that, I think you sustain success for a long time. That, to me, is... You know, oh, there goes the stink bug. I don't know if you heard it. Um, I, I think that to me is the the hallmark of what these Canadians are going to be for the next three years. I think that they've built that window in where the next three years are Mar Martin St. Louis trying to build up this roster's confidence, trying to build a culture within that organization. He mentioned that word culture. It's very important. Um, you know, we're shifting away from the character of the previous regime and into the culture of the new regime, which I do think I was talking with, with, with someone on Twitter about this, that the, I think that, you know, character was something that they, something that the Canadians used to use as a way of conveniently acquiring the players they want to acquire and conveniently disposing of the players they no longer wanted, um, you know, it, it, you apply, you, you know, they acquired Andrew Shaw and told us all about his character, leaving out the part where he said, you know, homophobic slurs on the ice. Um, you know, 
And then, you know, they, they trade away a guy like P.K. Subban in the same summer um, with the idea that there were character concerns. Um, so it's just they never said character concerns, but it's always what came out of that that organization. And I, I refuse to believe anything but that, um, that 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 was the issue at play there. But I'm not really getting that trade right now. Um, the part in here that I think is most important that I think might get overlooked is um, he says, you know, we've got to put those guys on the ice and make them feel confident on the ice. So many times we, we, we talk about confidence as something that players just need to figure out. And, you know, so many times that has involved, like, putting a skilled player on the fourth line. Like, he's on the fourth line because he has no confidence. So we need him to build up that confidence. So we've done that. The way we've helped him do that is by giving him eight minutes a night and no power play time. Well, you're not going to build up his confidence that way, are you? I mean, Cole Caulfield's the, the prime example of that. He was obviously lacking confidence at the beginning of this season, you know, playing under Dom Ducharme. And then St. Louis takes over, and I, I don't think the first game he was moved up the lineup, but the second or third game he definitely was. And it was just, it was over for everybody at that point. Like, Cole Caulfield was going to score on you now. So, you know, yes, I think, you know, confidence when it comes to player development has a lot to do with the player themselves, but you have to put them in a position to succeed. Something that I don't think the Canadians have done with any young players over the last 10 years. I don't think... They've put any of them truly in a position where they are able to succeed. Short of like Nick Suzuki, um, Arturi Laikinen, Jake Evans. The list might end there. Ten years, three players. Like it's just not, it's not good enough. So this is really exciting because I think that this is an organizational mandate, not something that's just coming out of Martin St. Louis' mouth. Um, so the next three years, the judgment of this coach and the development system won't be based on wins and losses. I'm sure it will a little bit if they lose. If they lose 75 games, we're not saying that. But they're not, I don't. I don't think they're going to lose that many games. Um, instead, it's going to be about how well this coach can bring along younger players and not only get the most out of them now, you know, in their current stage, but I want to see flashes of them playing over their heads. From now on, you know, every once in a while, it's not all the time you don't, but, but the idea that progress is a straight line needs to be thrown out the window. Like these guys should be able to show that they're really good on some nights and then go back down to being about what we expect them to be. But all throughout that, when those dips happen, you're not burying them on the fourth line. You're not scratching them for, you know, extended periods of time, um, where this gets truly, truly interesting is after that third year, um, you know, with St. Louis, can he flip that switch and get the players that are there now, or the, you know, the young guys that he's been helping bring along, can he flip that switch? And now, and you know, now it's not, we're not, we're just feeling good about the way we're playing. Now it's let's win hockey games. He says that winning is a side effect of doing that sort of thing of bringing players along and having them reach their full potential. And I agree but it's and it's only a side effect if the if you know the the rest of the development system is getting those players to the NHL in a state where they are ready to to get that kind of instruction from St. Louis. So it'll be interesting to see how this sort of plays out in in Montreal. I know this year will be, you know, the, the upcoming season, the expectations are still pretty low, but I'm wondering if if over the the course of this summer into next summer, cap space allowing, I wonder, you know, how many guys really want to play for Marty St. Louis. It's it's got to be a a pretty fun uh, concept, you know. You're playing for a hockey hall of famer who a lot of these kids grew up watching. We've we've all seen the pictures of Cole Caulfield going to a game in Tampa wearing a Marty St. Louis jersey, and that's why he wore 26 growing up. Um, so it'll be it'll be exciting to see what what happens, um, you know, with him playing not only a role as head coach, but he's he's got a say now in in how players are developed. So. He owns some of the successes that will come with that. And, you know, he will own some of the uh, pitfalls if it comes to that. Um, so just a, it's a good day in general. This 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 new organization or the new regime is starting to put their their fingerprints all over the um, the hockey operations. Um, you know, every part of it, the, the 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 bench, 
to I'm still really interested to see what Adam Nicholas does um with as as the the head of development for them. So it's a good that was a good piece of news for the Montreal Canadiens. And then another piece of good news that was supposed to be really good news and it turned into a screaming fight was um Carey Price winning the Bill Masterton uh trophy. This is going to be a somewhat stupid conversation. Um do your best to hang in there. It's not going to be a conversation where I blame people for who they voted for. I don't care. But it is interesting now that the ballots are available. Um, so Carey Price wins the Bill Masterton. Uh, I'll read you the trophy description. The Bill Masterton Tro- Memorial Trophy is awarded annually to the National Hockey League player who best exemplifies the quality of perseverance, sportsmanship, and dedication to ice hockey. Uh, Wikipedia adds, it is named after Bill Masterton, the only player in NHL history to die as a direct result of injuries suffered during a game. I thought this was funny, not because someone died, so relax. Um, but because the word direct result is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that, uh, in that description. Um, you know, sure, he, he, Bill Masterton was the only person to suffer an injury and then die immediately afterwards. Um, but, I mean, Howie Morenz died um, because of an injury he had on the ice. Not, a, I guess it wasn't soon enough afterwards for this description. But also, I mean, <laughs> CTE exists. I know the NHL refuses to believe it. But I would, I would like, I would, you know, I think we live in a world where um, Wade Belak died as a direct result of what he was doing <laughs> in, in the NHL. Um, Derek Bugard died as a direct result of an of injuries he suffered in the NHL. So I think for one, the award is based on a, a fallacy. It's based on a lie, if we're being honest. And two, I think the award sets a terrible precedent that like, you know, dying on the ice was like the most honorable thing the NHL could think of. So they're like, yes, he persevered by dying while playing hockey. So it's it's already sticky. It's already gross. I already hate this award because every year it's just who is the saddest story? Go. Did someone have cancer? Cancer wins. Like it just it just it turns out to be that every year. Um which isn't to to minimize those struggles of those players. They're a huge deal. Like it's it's you know, like it it ma- like winning that award I think matters to people. To matters to players, it matters to their families. It's sort of a capstone on you know, overcoming, which is, you know, so much of hockey and sports culture in general is just the, the, the joy of seeing people overcome obstacles. Um, so the award itself, based on all of what I've said, is entirely subjective and it's a qualitative assessment. No number is going to tell you how much a player persevered more than another. So the voting can't really be criticized from a you-should-have-voted-for-this-person perspective. With that said, I'd like to... I want to frame this a little bit more around the idea that writers vote for these trophies because I maybe, I, I don't see a lot of people sharing this sentiment, so maybe I'm completely out of my mind, which is entirely likely. But I don't like the aspect that writers are voting on these I, I've never liked it it feels it feels entirely useless and just a way to prop them up a little bit more and this is like I know that over the last decade with especially being a fan of the Canadians but hockey in general and the world in general there's a disdain for media and I don't have that you were you know I was a lot of the time banging the drum for these media folk to, you know People were just blaming media for narratives when they didn't like what they were reading. That's not what this is. I'm not blaming the media for anything. Um, but I think it's weird because entry-level players get paid performance bonuses based on awards at the end of the season. Um, notably, the Masterton Trophy is not included in that group of awards where you get that performance bonus. Um, and neither is the Calder, obviously, because it's an entry-level bonus and it would be easy they'd be hitting that you know one person would be hitting that bonus every year with the way that it's currently structured um the calder and the vesna aren't included so a lot of times you're you're the only way you're hitting that bonus is if you're like one of the elite of the elite in the league um like adam fox was the last one i saw in the second year of his entry-level contract last season he won the norris trophy um so he won he got a bonus for that um 
that was that that's a, a group B bonus. Um, but it's and it's not often that an entry level contract player wins one of those awards and then cashes in on their on that part of their group B bonus. There's like a maximum that you can win with your group B bonus uh, in a given year. I'll have descriptions. I'll have um links to there's a Puckpedia article on that sort of thing. Um, I'll have two of I'll have two of them in there on on performance bonuses. It's interesting stuff, but I thought that was the real issue. Like I thought going into this, all players would have gotten some kind of bonus for an ELC for for winning an award. That's not true. Um, so the real issue isn't money, like I originally thought. But I think the real issue here is is legacy. Um, you know that hardware winning these trophies, maybe not so much the Masterton, but that hardware gets you into the Hall of Fame, you know? Um, like, a missed heart trophy, maybe that's a, a deciding factor for you getting into the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, the one that comes to mind is um, Jerome McGinley, who obviously made it, right? Like, he made the Hall of Fame. But the, the 2002 heart trophy voting, um, the writers vote on the heart. Back then, we didn't have the ballots. Like, we just didn't... We didn't have the, you know, the detailed ballots of which writers voted one through five for each one. Um, but they were, t Jose Theodore and, uh, and Jerome McGinley were tied in overall points. But Jose Theodore had more first place votes. I think he had three more first place votes than McGinley. And so therefore he won the Hart Trophy. Um, it is speculated that one person left Aginla off their ballot entirely. And that gave Theodore the, the edge. It's speculated even further that that person was a Montreal writer. So you can see how, you know, an issue like this could keep someone off the ballot. Um, also, I think of like, if you've ever watched a, an Edmonton Oilers press conference with Leon Dreisaitl, how much every writer out there just hates that guy. Mark Spector and an NHL by Maddie, who claims to be a Hall of Famer, but he's not a Hall of Famer. He, he has his name on a plaque in the Hall of Fame. He has not been inducted into the Hall of Fame. So stop with that. Um, but going back to the Masterton, because I'm already losing track. I don't have an issue with who people voted on for this award. It's entirely subjective, like I said earlier. This isn't really a criticism of those votes that go against who I would have voted for, which is Carey Price. But this is the criticism at hand for those who might have fortunately missed out on it. Um, while Price won the Masterton, he won the, the overall vote, he didn't get a ton of love from Montreal writers. Um, only Eric Engels had him in first place. Arpin Basu had him in third behind Chara and Akposo. Pierre Lebrun doesn't technically qualify as a Montreal writer, but he did give Price a third place vote as well, so we'll tally it at three votes for Price from Montreal Canadiens adjacent media members. Every other Montreal media member to vote on the award left Price off the ballot entirely, um, which is fine. It's reasonable. Like, vote for who you want. The part that gets me and that seems a little weird is that they all voted for Justin Danforth from Columbus. Um, Danforth got two first place votes from La Presse writers, another first from a La Presse Canadienne writer, uh, got a second place vote from a Journal de Montréal writer, and another second place vote from a La Presse writer. So five votes for Justin Danforth of Columbus were from Montreal writers. And he got as many first place votes from Montreal writers as Price got votes for Montreal writers total. Like all of his votes, all of Price's first, second, third place votes. Danforth got as many first place votes as that total. So Danforth got four total first place votes in the entire league, meaning that 75% of his first place votes came from Montreal writers. 21 of his 47 points in the voting came from Montreal writers. Like I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't care. I don't care who you voted for. I, I genuinely don't, but it was very odd that, that they had a slam dunk for, for their, their, not their guy, but the guy they know the best. Um, you know, 
and I looked, I looked into it because I was like, okay, well maybe he like he played in Montreal a bunch like this season, and like the writers got to got to know him and hear his story a little bit, and that's how it how it happened. He played one game against Montreal this year. He had no points and played fewer than twelve minutes. Um, that so that's not it. I looked for the hometown angle, not a French thing, but just like a he's from Laval or something thing. He's from Oshawa, so that wasn't it. Um, you know, I'm less looking for reasons why they left Price off the ballot and was more so looking for reasons that these writers decided to vote for a guy that I don't think a lot of people knew was in the league. And that's that's kind of where his story is. Danforth played his first NHL games this season as a 28-year-old after a long path to the NHL, playing, uh, I think, some American League games, a lot of ECHL games. I think he might have played overseas a little bit. Um, and like I said, this fan base is often overly critical of the people who cover the team. Um, I generally find myself in the other camp. If you don't like the coverage, go find something else. There are too many people covering this team to spend your time complaining about any one media source. Like just go figure something else out. And well, I don't think it's fair for them to, I don't think it's fair to say they've made bad choices on an award that's entirely subjective. I do think it's valid to kind of wonder what they were seeing there. Um, so I, it's just weird. I'm going to leave it there. As I've said, critiquing this award is stupid because the award is already kind of silly. Um, the Ultimately, the award, the award remains the saddest story slash oldest guy award. And that's always going to be suggest, subject, subjective, excuse me, unless it's, you just all vote for the older guy. Um, I don't care that these guys think Price's story was sadder than Chara's being old. I, I, it doesn't matter. So let's just let's get over it. But, again, I do think that this issue is going to continue to rear its head when it comes to the awards of, of on-ice merit and the awards that determine legacy later on. Um, like, I, Patrice Bergeron just won his fifth Selkie, um, a record-breaking fifth Selkie. I was looking through the ballot. Someone, someone at, at, in a Buffalo newspaper left Bergeron off the ballot entirely. And looking at the totals, like looking at the people who voted, it it wasn't close. Like Bergeron ran away with it, and rightfully so. He's he's phenomenal at what he does still. So it's especially weird. Not not only that they thought one player was better than him, they left that this one person left Bergeron off the ballot entirely and had Marshand in fourth. So like they're watching the Bruins apparently, and they said no, it's not the guy that everybody else had at first. He's not on my ballot at all. It's his line mate that I think is better than him at this one thing. So it's just weird. Um, And I think these awards, like I said earlier, like I think they, they are a deciding factor when it comes to players making it into the Hall of Fame. And if two guys are in the last year of their eligibility together and they have almost identical stats, but one of them has a Selkie or a Norris... I think they're going to go with the guy who has the hardware. Only four players can go into the Hall of Fame in any given year. Only four NHL players, I believe. I think if if um, if it was a women's hockey player or someone internationally, I think they can they can add more. But only four NHL guys can go in in any given year. So that's not some doomsday scenario I just made up. Like, it can realistically happen. So... You know, I, I thought about this for a while, and I was like, I, don't, I, I at first I thought, like, I don't think I have a good idea for how to change it. But I thought on it, and I said, well, if the Hall of Fame is, is deciding who gets into the Hall of Fame based on the awards that are voted on, shouldn't the Hall of Fame also vote on the awards? So why not just let the selection committee decide who wins these awards? There are always 18 active members of the selection committee, they serve three-year terms with a maximum of 15 years, uh, five terms. They stagger appointments every year, so six members have their terms end each year. Um, so there's there's a constant changing pool there, at least the opportunity for one. I, I would imagine a lot of people stay for the 15 years, but even so, how long are people sports writers for? Like you're seeing a lot of people vote on the Hall of Fame that you vote on these awards that, you know, I would have seen if the ballots were active or the, if the ballots were revealed 10 years ago. 
So if you want, and if you wanted to, you could even include former members of that committee. They're all listed on the Hockey Hall of Fame website. Like you could include them if you wanted a larger pool for these for these uh, votes. Is it a perfect plan? No, but I, I also bet you'd have a lot of, or I should say a lot fewer incorrect ballots. And the task would belong to a body who has been responsible for recognizing greatness in hockey and having to put their name to it for a long time. Um, to go back to what I said about incorrect ballots, when a ballot has a mistake on it, all votes for that category get thrown away. So if you only vote for four people for the Selkie instead of five, all of your votes for awards go in the garbage. Hart, Norris, Selkie, Calder, they all get thrown away. If you, you know, if you went, they also do all-star, you know, first team all-star, second team all-star, first, and the all-rookie team. If you vote for a defenseman as a forward accidentally, which you, you might be like, that's stupid. It happens every year. If you do that accidentally, all of your all-star votes are thrown out. And again, that, that all-star voting, it has an impact on those group B bonuses that entry-level contract players get. Since... And you might be saying like, oh, that doesn't happen all that often. Since the ballots became publicly posted in 2018, only one year's ballot has had no discarded ballots. And it was last year's, thanks in no small part to the voter block being consolidated from 175 voters to just 100. So the only way they were able to vote correctly is when they had fewer of them. And I think it was like something like 94 you know, uh, North American voters, and they included some international voters in there. So I, you know, why I, I think that the, the hand wringing about the Masterton is stupid. I think that the way that we are voting on these awards is stupid. Like, it needs to change. I, I and I maybe I'm the only one who believes this. And if so, fine, I'm still gonna yell and scream about it. And you're gonna listen to it. But, like, I just, I don't see a world where it's fair that Group B bonuses of thousands and thousands of dollars for guys on entry-level contracts are decided by a group of writers who might have something out against them. I'm not saying that anybody in Montreal has anything out against Carey Price. That's stupid. But I am saying that, <laughs> that Matheson out in Edmonton hates Leon Dreisaitl. We've seen it. The guy hates him. And it would be a shame if Leon Dreisettle, you know, not only for the group, the bonuses, because he's not making those anymore, nor does he need them. He makes millions of dollars every year. But for the legacy of having all of those. Like, it's, it's not, I personally don't believe it is fair to leave it up to these, to leave it up to writers, media members. I don't believe it's the right thing. So change it. Anyway. Moving on, actually kind of staying on the same path. Carey Price has the Masterton. I also learned it was on uh, the, someone posted on the Canadian subreddit today that Price now has the most unique number of awards in Canadian's history because he's got Vesna, Hart, Lindsay, Jennings, and now the Masterton. He's got five. No other Canadian has won five different awards like that. So that's really cool. Um, but staying on Carey Price, um, when he was speaking to the media about winning the Masterton, he uh, did he did some media after that, and he was talking about his knee. Um, he said that he got a platelet-rich plasma injection in his knee, or a PRP injection. Um, without getting too sciencey, it's an injection that is supposed to help his knee heal with by by enhancing the body's natural growth factors. Hopefully, without the need for you know more medication down the line. I didn't write that. That's from Luke Luke Fox at Sportsnet. Description has the link to that story if you want to read it. Um, so it seems like he's trying to make an effort to play next season. I think Hughes had said at some point that, you know, uh, some kind of surgery was on the table where if he had it, he would be out for the year. So it seems like they're trying to get around that. Um, and remember, Hughes says in a perfect world that they know Price's status by the time free agency opens on July 13th. There's lots of cap space if he can't play because they'll put him on long-term IR. He might he might retire at that point. Um, not as much cap space if he can play, but then you have a good goalie tandem assuming a healthy price, which of course cannot be assumed at any given time at this point. 
Um, given that there's about a month to get that answer, I bet it's going to be anything definitive anyway. Like it's it's just it's not going to be anything definitive if if that was any if that was unclear. I I I bet we get on July thirteenth the Canadians aren't able to do much because we still don't know what Carey Price is doing. Um, and that's fine. He needs to take his time for, for himself as a, as a, as a dude with knees, less so than the goalie of the Montreal Canadiens, more so than the goalie of the Montreal Canadiens, I should say. Um, but with that said, I hope Ken Hughes has a backup plan. I hope it's, and I hope it's not, you know, have Caden Primo sit on the bench and then play him against Toronto for no reason. Um, so where's where's the concern level with Carey Price at the moment? For me, if 10 is the most concerned and 1 is not concerned at all, I'd say I'm probably at a 7. You know, after you know, hearing his comments after, you know, the season ended, I think that was closer to a 9 or a 10. So I'm a little less concerned now that there's treatment going on that doesn't involve surgery at least for the time being. But if you ask me to make a call on it right now, my gut says that we might have seen the end of this and that this being Carey Price in Montreal, not as a trade thing, but as a, he might just be done. Um, it just feels like, especially like he won the master and he got that great curtain call at the end of the year. The team is turning over the keys to the young guys. Like it just seems like, it seems like a good time for him to, to take his leave if he wants to. Um, I guess it's really, it's really just all dependent on, you know, first and foremost, his health and whether or not playing can be sustainable long-term. But, you know, second of all, whether or not he wants to. It seems like right now he does. He keeps he keeps saying he wants to play. He's going to push through this. He's going to figure out how to make it work. So more credit to him. Um, but maybe he goes the Jason Spezza route and he just joins the front office. I, I just don't know how anyone can feel confident about the answer to a question that, Ken Hughes doesn't even know yet. Carey Price doesn't even know yet. So I don't know. All right, this next one is the first and only topic I had to discuss last week. And the entire show was just going to be about this, which would have been too long to talk about this thing. Um, last week, there were some tweets by uh, Andrew Berkshire of SDPN and, you know, everywhere you can read about hockey, it seems like. Uh, he tweets, if you were to ask Habs fans which player uh, who finished the season with the club had the highest positive on-ice impact, I think the answer would shock 99% of people. This player led the team in both actual goal above replacement and expected goals above replacement, easily the team's best 5-on-5 five -five player. I remember reading that, and my first thought was Josh Anderson, um, because I had just peeked at... at natural stat trick and he was pretty high up on expected goals um but it turns out the answer was jeff petrie um who i think everyone is just sort of uh has sort of resigned themselves to the fact that he's going to be traded at some point this offseason and then he has played his last games as a montreal canadian but the reality is we just don't know at this point and you know I think, yeah, we know it's, we, we feel like it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to be dealt, but I think the, the more interesting question is, should he be, Sh you know, should they trade th this type of player who Andrew Berkshire says had the highest positive on ice impact? You're taking the player off of the team who had the highest positive on ice impact and trying to develop players and develop a winning culture. It seems like it would be difficult to do that. Um, the cap friendly says he's 34 years old. He's got three years left on his contract at 6.25 million per season. I thought that was I thought that contract was much longer. I don't know why I thought it was six years. It turns out it was only four. So he'll be 37 when the deal is up. He's not going to turn 35 until December. Um, so you know it's it's not. He's not at the end of his career yet. And if if the last few months of last season showed anything. He's still really, really good. Like, if if Andrew Berkshire is saying those that those you know if those numbers are true, which I imagine he is, he's not lying to us. Andrew doesn't lie. Um, if those numbers are are truthful, we all remember how 
absolutely ass he was at the beginning of the season just because everyone was bad and he was shouldering a lot of that blame because Jeff Petrie was the de facto captain of the Montreal Canadiens this season. Carey Price isn't there. Shea Weber isn't there. He's he's the guy. Joel Edmondson isn't there. He was the guy. Paul Byron wasn't there. Like you forget how 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 much they were missing a lot of like their key guys. And also it shows you like how much damage that Stanley Cup final round did. Um but when things went wrong and young players were complaining about the way things were done, he was the one going to to Dom Ducharme to talk about it. Jeff Petrie said as much. I'm not making this up. You know, it was it was his he took it upon himself to be the guy to go talk to Dom Ducharme and Ducharme didn't really want to change anything and it it let it led to Jeff Petrie being you know sort of the scapegoat in all of that that he was he was the guy who looked worst the worst on all these plays because he was he was out there against the toughest competition playing the dumbest type of hockey he could imagine so you know i don't think that it makes i don't think it's out of the question to keep Jeff Petrie but let's I'll, I'll go into it so there's two camps here we trade him or keep him why would you trade him the first part is I think obvious in this day and age in the NHL is his cap hit and his age um, I don't think he's going to be valuable or even even around when the Canadians are expected to be good again right like if he's got three years left and like I said earlier, we're looking at the Martin St. Louis contract as sort of a, a bracket for when the Canadians expect to be kind of building up their younger players. If you don't think that Jeff Petrie is going to be a valuable, P, you know, if, if you don't think that after that Jeff Petrie is still worth that money or that you'll be able to sign him after that point, then you've got to move on from him when he still has value. And you've got to move on with him when that value is is the highest it, it possibly is. Um, and the other reason you trade him is because he's unhappy and he wants a trade. Remember, th that's why the Canadians are entertaining trade offers on him. Not because he sucks, not because, you know, he, he looked silly a lot of times in front of the net this season. They're trading him because he wanted one. Because his situation with his family being in the States caused a lot of issues for him, which is entirely reasonable. And not only that, the Canadians don't need to honor this request. Like, like with, like with Mark Bergeron when Victor Mete requested a trade and he said, no, I'm just going to put you on waivers two months from now. So... You know, the Canadians don't need to honor this request, but it seems like Kent Hughes is comfortable with facilitating it. It seems like he's comfortable going, you know what? You've been a, a model Canadian. If we have, if we get a trade that we like, we're going to move you. Um, and both of those are valid reasons for a trade, right? Like they're both, if he's unhappy and he's not going to be happy here because he just wants to be with his family, then you're better off dealing him. If you don't think that his value is, is going to be, maintain itself throughout the duration of his contract to the point where you are trying to win a Stanley cup and he's not a hindrance at that point. Like that's, that's the sort of thing we're looking at. So if you, if, if, if either of those things hit in the proper way, you're trading him, why you don't trade him is to me somewhat obvious because he's still really good. Um, and he got better under St. Louis like, what I was trying to say earlier, and I think I got distracted by my own thought, you know, we remember how bad he was at the beginning of the season, how bad everybody was. At the end of the year, based on all of the players that stuck around through the entire season, he was the best one by the metrics that, that Berkshire provided. He was almost a point-per-game player under St. Louis. Like, he was really, really good. And I still remember how everybody got all over him when he scored two goals against the Rangers the day before uh, the, the 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 penultimate game so like he's still a good player and m secondly Montreal doesn't have a suitable replacement for those minutes Savard can't do can't do it Romanov should not be doing it 
And I and Hughes knows that because whenever he's talked about dealing Petrie, which is still really weird that the general manager of the Canadians is talking about trading a player when Mark Bergeron made that sound illegal, like you couldn't talk about trading a, a hockey player. Um, whenever he, whenever Hughes has talked about dealing Petrie, he said that he was going to bring in a veteran player to replace him, that he wasn't just going to let the team flounder, let the young guys on defense just get thrown to the wolves. So, you know, do you want Petrie or do you want less good defensemen and more future assets? Because that's what you're getting. So my verdict, I, I do think you probably still trade him just because the timeline doesn't really match up. But it doesn't need to be this offseason. Um, you know, maybe you let him play a little bit. You play him into December and see if you can make a deal happen. I still think there's a really good fit with Dallas just because Dallas is going to lose Klingberg. And I think Petrie's wife is from Texas. Like it makes a lot of sense. It all it, it that trade has always made a ton of sense to me. Especially with Dallas, I think kind of realizing they've got a hot goalie. They've got Jason Robertson is incredible. And they know they're kind of running out of time with guys like uh Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan and Joe Pavelski. So like that that seems like a team that's gonna want to go for it. Ultimately, though, I don't think that. Hughes makes any kind of deal until he gets the exact deal that he wants, just like Toffoli, just like Lekkonen, just like Kulak. Like, he didn't need to move any of those guys, but he did. Um, If I'm the general manager, I'm not moving him unless the return is a first-round pick and an A prospect, like a surefire NHL prospect. So until you get that, you're keeping him. Um... It's still going to be an interesting thing to see how it develops. I wonder if Chatter picks up at the draft. I wonder if Chatter picks up headed into free agency if guys miss out on the Klingbergs uh, of of the free agency pool this year. There aren't many. Um, it's basically Klingberg and Latang, unless there's somebody I'm missing on defense. So more to come there, but but I don't think that this is as open and shut as as a lot of folks make it. And Andrew made a, a really good point that that you know Petrie was the best player on the Canadians this season. Shift gears a little bit here. We'll go to the Laval Rocket. They are playing in the conference final in the AHL. Um, I'll be honest. I watched game one. I missed game two. Of course, they lost game one and they won game two. Uh, game one was a two one overtime loss. It really felt like a playoff game. Um, Primo was fantastic for, um, for Laval. The first goal that he gave up, I, I, I thought was a bad goal. And then I looked at it again. It was through a moving screen and I think it deflected off of, uh, Tyler Dello. So can't really give him that one. And the second one was a Matthew Pekka breakaway. So it is what it is. Joel Hoffer for, for Springfield was also ridiculously good in that game. Um, I think he made 41 of 42 saves, you know, that game was really, really tight checking. That was the first, like, that was like the first legitimate playoff game I felt like Laval played where it was just really, really, really tight the entire way. Um, and I was like, oh, there's not going to be a ton of room to move around in this series. So, you know, they might be in tight. And then, of course, game two, they win four to two uh, in, in Springfield. They played back to back games. So Springfield put in a different goalie, which I thought was bizarre considering the first night Joel Hoffer made. 41 saves i know he's probably tired but it's the playoffs play him in the playoffs um and instead laval faced former laval rocket and montreal canadians goalie charlie Lindgren and beat him four to two but they may be without cedric paquette and gabriel bork for game three on wednesday according to andrew zadarnowski of habs eyes on the prize they're going to be evaluated on tuesday to see if they can go on wednesday if they can't um, it means we might see Kidney, Riley Kidney and or Joshua Waugh play for Laval this week, which is exciting because it's sort of a, a better glimpse at Montreal Canadiens prospects. We get to see a good look at them playing against real professionals. Um, I wouldn't expect too much just because they've they haven't played a ton in a while. So and they you know, this is a big jump for them going from their junior league teams up to the AHL. So but it'll still be lots of fun. It's a it's a lot of fun watching this Laval team, man. Uh, Brennan Gignac is having an incredible run, as is Danik Martel. The blue, I think I thought the blue line's been really good. I've loved Corey Schooneman 
for Laval. I love him in Montreal too, and I'll get to him in a, in a second. Um, but like Torridello has been really, really good. Um, there's there's a lot to like on that Laval team, even from the guys who aren't. You know, there's this big complaint that well they're not playing the prospects enough. Well, they're trying to win a Calder Cup. Like I think I think that's I think that's important. I talked about it on the last episode. You know that it's it's just as important for these players who are going to be in Montreal for their careers. It's important for them to see what it takes to win those trophies. And I think that just having them along is going to be valuable. Um, so if you haven't che- checked any of them out yet, you should. It's it's a lot of fun. Game three's on Wednesday. I think the way that it's set up is games three, four, and five are in Laval. So if Montreal, if Laval takes all three of them, they win the series and they're in the Calder Cup final. Um, they earn the split at home. Even if you take two of them and you go up three to one or three, to, it would be three to two at that point. Even if you go three to two and you, you have to just not lose two games in a row, you're feeling pretty good about it. So we'll see how it works out. Check out those games if you can. It's, it's really, really a lot of fun. Um, all right. Last bit of news uh, actually broke today. That's why it's at the bottom of the list. It's not because I don't care about Chris Weidman, but Chris Weidman's back. Um, first thing Monday morning, the Canadians announced a new contract for defenseman Chris Weidman. Um, two years. According to Eric Engels, it looks like $762,000 per year. No bonuses. Um, I think, actually, it's it's 762000 in the first year and then seventy seventy five in the second season. Um, it's one way so even if he's demoted to the AHL for some reason he's still making that money but why would you bury that money in the AHL I think he's just a Montreal Canadian for the time being um over the last 10 years it's been hard to get Habs fans to agree on much but like it was really surprising to see how everybody was like genuinely pleased with this contract um the younger guys on the team really seemed to like Chris Weidman you know he was acknowledging very openly and I thought it was kind of striking that a player was speaking like this he said you know like I'm not I may not be here when this team wins the Stanley Cup but if I can play a role in them getting there eventually uh, you know I'm paraphrasing like he's he he seems very cognizant of the idea that he's not he's probably not going to be around when this team's any good and he said you know like he had a lot of fun last year and that team finished last place like he's like it's only going to get better as we get better so I was kind of wishy-washy on Weidman um he plays 12 minutes a night. Like it's, he's not going to kill you. Um, and you know, it's good for him too, because he acknowledged often throughout the season that he knew he was playing for a job. Like he was like, it might be my last season in the NHL if I don't play well. Um, so when the, the half season was seemingly meaningless, it meant something to him. And now he's got job security, which is really great. It's, it's something that I, you know, you root, you root for in people, um, you know, and hockey players are people. So, it's it's nice to see. Um, I do think that this will be helpful for the Canadians' depth chart and their the development of the younger guys as well. I don't think Weidman is a bum. He's not a bad hockey player. He's he's in the the best league on the planet, playing on on a hockey team on the best team in the uh, best league in the planet. Um, but I think he and other veteran defensemen who are going to play a bottom bottom four role are kind of Mendoza line players for. The Canadians, and what I mean by that is, so the Mendoza line, for those who don't know, is a baseball statistic. Um, it's sort of a, I, I should say, it's um, like a colloquialism for a statistic within baseball, where if you're bat, the Mendoza line is a 200 batting average, so you get a hit in 25 or 20 percent of at bats. He, you know, if you're below the Mendoza line, you're not, and you're not a major league player. Like you should be playing somewhere else. You're really struggling. You're not hitting it at, at a major league level. I think that kind of tracks here, at least philosophically for the Canadians. Like I said, Weidman's not a bad hockey player, but I think him and Schooneman are going to make up a bottom six role or a bottom, you know, a, 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 a final pairing for the Canadians, a third pair that I think is going to make a decent Mendoza line pairing for the Canadians. If Harris or Barron or Norlander or Gooley or anybody of any of the other young guys that they might get, if they can't outplay Weidman and Schooneman, to play on the Montreal Canadiens, they probably shouldn't be there. It's it's kind of similar. Like think back to when the Canadians had an, an uh, they, they gave a, a a professional tryout to Joel Ward years ago. Like this was a long time ago. It was sort of the same thing. 
Like this is an NHL veteran. If you guys can't outplay him, you 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 won't be on this team. So I think it's good to have those guys. But also, like, I again, like Weidman's gonna be a valuable guy to have around. Um maybe he's a he's a a, a partner for one of the Barons or Harris's or Norlanders or Ghoulies. Um that can kind of show them how to how to move the puck in a more offensive way. It might be valuable to have Harris learn from him. I don't know. Um, but it it I I think it was it was nice to wake up to that news and have everybody kind of be like, yeah, this is sick, cool. Um, so good for Chris Weidman. Glad he's back. I hope he doesn't knee anybody in the nuts like he did against Philly towards the end of the year. That was a ridiculous penalty for him to take. Anyway, I didn't mean to end it negative like that. That's not very nice. Um, that's it. I've gone for a very long time this week probably too long um thanks for listening uh if you like to share it with somebody i don't know force them to listen to it sit down in your living room with them and lock the door and have and have this play in the background and then videotape it and let me know how it went uh you can follow me on twitter at maybe and at rabbit Habs for the blog um check the description for links i mentioned links to things i mentioned during the show lots of um work that wasn't mine that i you know researched for this this episode so check that out and the music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing now is inside by fred mug check the description for a link to his Bandcamp page to listen to the rest of his stuff including a six track album called expedition all right guys i'll see you next week maybe hopefully all right see you bye